Hi, everybody. It is episode 23 of Ask Us Anything. The questions keep coming in, so we'll keep doing our best to answer those. I am Mark Graben. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Hey, Greg. Hello, I'm Greg Jacobson. Greg is uh, very humble. If you don't know, he is the co-founder and CEO of Kinexus. And that's a pretty cool mug. Here, why, Since you got it in, in the shot there, why don't you show the mug and the logo for... Yeah, this is something that we made at our last annual meeting in January, and uh, it was uh, designed by, I think, someone on the dev team. Um, that was kind of a throwback to the World Cup, and everyone got one with their initials and then their employee number, and because Kinexus was co-founded uh, with uh, Matt Palulis and I, we both got OG as yeah. our numbers and uh, Mark, do you do you happen to know who number three is? I'm number three, and oh, I thought I can show it up. This is from a previous meeting in terms of Kinexus swag. Here's my Kinexus briefcase slash backpack. Yeah, Mark is the only person who is not full time that uh, um, is a numbered person. He's been with us uh, really. Um, since 2011, it feels like since, since the beginning, even though I know the beginning was a little bit before that. From the practical beginning, Mark has been with us. And the last time we talked, Mark, you said, um, just because I'm not full-time committed to Kinexus doesn't mean I'm not fully committed to Kinexus. And so I thought that was a really yeah. cool way of saying it. So Yeah. Well, as long as you're not saying my days are numbered, that's fine. <laughs> Um, and for people who want to know more of the origin story of Kinexus, that story is out on Kinexus.com if, uh, if you haven't read about Greg and Matt um, co-founding uh, co the company. In fact, one of these Ask Us Anythings, we should have you and Matt do it, Greg. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. Matt's watching, so I'm listening, I think. So Matt, let us know. Maybe you're on the hook for that. But <laughs> our main thing here is answering questions that have come in. And in the spirit of Ask Us Anything, sometimes we get questions about basketball and travel. And here's a question to just kind of get the balls rolling. What's a book that you've been reading recently? Greg, why don't you go ahead? I am rereading Leaders Eat Last. And I'm rereading it because I thought it'd be a great exercise for Jake Sussman, our VP of Customer Experience, to do together. He asked me at the beginning of the year, he said, hey, I, you know, I, I love some more guidance on, from you on what to do this year. And, and I think Mark probably knows I have a, um, I wouldn't say laid back approach of doing things, but more of a, you know, poking and prodding and asking. And, and I thought to myself, after letting it sit for a couple of weeks, you know, one way I think I could help someone become a, an even better leader than they are is to simply read a book with them and like talk about it because I don't want to come from a place that that's it even implies that I'm a better leader than someone else and I have something to teach but I think it was a, it was a great medium we've had about three or four of these coffee sessions and I think you always re learn something in a deeper way when you're reading it the second time so I'm super glad to have picked Simon Sinek's I think second book um, leaders eat last highly recommend especially well, I guess whatever kind of leader you are whether that's in your community at your job I guess even in your personal life but um, yeah. especially um, from a business side of things yeah I mean leaders eat last I mean part of it quite literally is the idea 
that leaders allow everybody under them in the organization or in, in the military to literally go eat first and the leaders eat last, which I think is a, a, a really important sign of servant leadership and dedication. I remember somebody who worked for a hospital was at some sort of all hands management meeting and it was time for lunch and somebody got up and made an announcement and said, well, the executive team has to go to something or other. So everyone needs to hold back and let them go. Like in this organization, quite literally, the leaders were eating first and they said it was because of time pressure. But the guy I know uh, is a big fan of uh, Cynic's book and he couldn't help but pointing out, okay, maybe the circumstances were unusual, but it wasn't a leaders eat last kind of environment. There, there, are, there are too many organizations where leaders think, well, I'm, I'm important. And, you know, there's, you know, we're coming back to lean and the Toyota approach, humility is, is I think, such an important trait. And we see this in books that are, aren't about lean, like Cynic's book, right? Right, right. It's, it's, so, it's always refreshing when, quote, non-lean books have lean embedded in either the text or the subtext, and sometimes yeah. subtly and sometimes overtly. So yeah. his book is clearly one that should be on any leans practitioner's bookshelf. Yeah. And there's two related books um, that come from naval uh, ship commanders, captains. I, don't, I know I don't have the terminology right, but pretty high up, you know, they're responsible for a boat and everybody on it. One is called It's Your Ship, and the other is called Turn the Ship Around. I think one was actually about nuclear submarine. One was about a surface ship, but very similar, really inspiring leadership lessons of engage, engaging employees and, and not being the all-knowing commanding boss, even, even in the military. What are you reading? What am I reading? Um, I'm not through it yet, but I started reading it because I saw uh, a documentary that the author was in. And uh, this, this book will surprise people, but I try to read stuff that's not in the usual lean literature. It's a book called The Case Against Sugar. And so there are some very practical questions of dietary habits and health, and I'm interested in that. But I think it's also interesting. I can't help but look at things through the lens of like what happens when the way we've always been taught to do things turns out maybe not to be scientifically correct, or if we're being taught something new that flies in the face of what we were taught was correct or the way we've always done it. And so there's this movement that kind of explores going back to the 1950s in the efforts to um, address heart disease and obesity. There were kind of two competing camps of scientists, one who said fat is bad. Clearly, if you eat fat, you accumulate fat. There's a, there was another camp that said sugar is bad. And these camps battled for about two decades. And by the 70s, it became, I think, commonly accepted that fat was bad. So into the 80s and the 90s, you have all of these low fat foods. And what do they end up having to replace the fat with to make it taste good? Sugar. And there's this, I, I think, this interesting system, like quite literally systems, body systems, systems thinking of the idea that sugar gets converted to fat and that eating more fat might actually not be as bad as some people thought. So I'm not trying to give medical advice or dietary advice, but I think it's just, it's interesting when you run up against things that challenge convention, conventional wisdom, and we see that in other industries. So I'm curious what, what your reactions are to, to any of that. Yeah, no, I think that's, it's pretty clear. I, I couldn't draw out all the metabolic cycles 
today, but in medical school, we had a, a really great teacher that taught metabolism. And uh, he, aside from being like the coolest medical school teacher I had because he rode a motorcycle and he had long hair and that's not safe. No. <laughs> right. Right. But he was just like, he was just like the epitome of the fawns kind of walking in, but he would draw these just really elegant diagrams, but they were still quite simple. And it, it's pretty clear. I think aside from sugar being, you know, sh very short term, high energy, uh, energy source, which kind of leaves you to crash um, that that it's it's not metabolism is more complicated than oh if I eat fat I'll turn into fat yeah and so um, yeah no I'm sure I'm sure it's a great read it it reminds me of a Freakonomics episode I just listened to I think it might be the last one out or oh no the most recent one is about um, education and but the one before that is about um, data driven uh, um, parenting advice. Hmm. kind of going through spending an hour on exactly what you referred to. Like there's all this advice um, about parenting and what it, which of those are rooted in science and which are not. And so yeah. it's, uh, I, I love when we find out what we've been doing has been completely wrong and, and here's better science yeah. to explain what we should be doing. So. Yeah. So you're talking about short-term boosts of energy and long-term boosts of energy. That'll bring us into uh, the questions. We have a lot of questions today. The theme uh, for a while is going to be questions about culture from different people. But you mentioned fawns and, and the motorcycle. And this is probably, even though I'm not a dad, here's a bad dad joke. What was the fawns' favorite vitamin? What? Vitamin A. Ah, very nice. <laughs> Nobody yeah. asked for that. And I shouldn't have done that. So. Um, so here's a, a real I'm, question. I'm really there. laughing with you, Mark. I really am. <laughs> yeah, that was bad. Uh, Susan asks, how do you measure culture in an organization? Throw it to you first, Greg. You have thoughts? Yeah, I, I'm happy to take a first stab at that. I've been listening to a lot of Seth Godin, been reading his blog for a long time. He put out a podcast, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago. And I, I love the way Seth describes culture. And his little saying is, and people like us do things like this. That is the definition of culture. And so the, the, the way to measure culture, if we're defining culture as the people like us do things like this, is, well, measuring the things that we do. And so to me, that's the, the easiest. You're really, you're, you, you don't measure culture in a survey you measure culture by action and figuring out what kind of cycles of action there are. You can measure satisfaction in a survey. Mm -hmm. um, you can measure people's opinions. But if you really want to understand, I think, um, what organizations' culture is, figure out what are the things that they do. And whatever the things that they do are, that's ultimately going to define their culture. So from, an, from a continuous improvement standpoint, should measure the number of improvements that right. uh, an organization does. Um, for example, Mark? Yeah, so the next question uh, or related questions, and these all tie together, Colin asks, what measures of CI maturity are there for an organization? So I agree with you, Greg. I think on some level, the number of improvements being implemented, the percentage of employees who are involved in implementing ideas, the average lead time from initial generation to 
ends of at least the first PDSA cycle within Kaizen. But, you know, I think back to Susan's question, culture to me is really broad and vague, kind of of like the idea of health. I don't have a health score that's like a credit score, but I can choose things that measure aspects of health. So, you know, if Susan were here with us, I would ask her, you know, well, you know, are, are there more specific aspects of culture. Um, If we're going to talk about a culture of continuous improvement, I think there are things that we can measure on more of a real-time basis than waiting for surveys, once a year, once every two year type surveys. It's interesting you you talk about about that. And uh, I I recently, you know, as you know, Mark, I go through my musings on our Friday morning meetings and I recently had a muse, maybe in the last couple of months, I don't know if you were on this one, related to time to talk a little bit about the kind of figuring out what work to be done and, and how do you do good work. And I think it relates a little bit to what we're talking in uh, this topic about. And uh, there's really kind of three things to answer or three things to do, I think, when we're when we're kind of thinking at when we're at work and, and doing work. And I think this could apply to improve work as well. But one has to do with prioritization. Make sure what we're doing or what we're working on is the top priority. Then execute that at a high level. And then finally, time manage it. Time manage yourself really well. So make sure that you're you know, not going down rabbit holes and getting distracted, but that you're actually accomplishing your tasks. And I think those three things relate very well into improvement work in that, you know, what's the most important thing that we should be focusing on? And by we, it can be your small local team, your whole organization, you as an individual. Then it can be, well, how do we make sure we execute on that well? And that could be, oh, we're going to use DMAIC or A3, or we're going to do a PDSA, whatever kind of methodology. Those methodologies, I think, are their goal in mind is to make sure that you're kind of coming to the right answer or at least to a better state. And then finally, make sure that kind of the time management works. So make sure you don't have bottlenecks in your process. Make sure that you haven't added a bunch of non-value added steps to your improvement process. But I think if you can think of those three aspects and then apply that to your your work day or your improvement day, I think you'll it'll it'll create a good framework for how you should think through that. Yeah, and, and back to another component of Colin's question. You know, he also asked, what quick wins can you suggest with respect to culture change? And he was talking about embedding continuous improvement. So, you know, Greg, I, I mean, I, I'll take a little bit different approach where I think prioritization is really important for the big things, mm-hmm. where time, resources, things like that are um, a, a constraint at some point. But there's also, I think, a, a school of thought that says at the same time, all of the small, little improvements don't really require prioritization. We just want people participating and right. doing lots of little improvements. So, you know, I think Colin's question about quick wins, I would suggest, you know, quite literally small, quick Kaizen wins and not organization wide, but the initial quick win organizationally might be in one department. So we focus on one department, um, coach their leaders to help facilitate and, and collaborate with employees on the small, quick wins. And do so in a way where employees see continuous improvement as beneficial to them. That will draw them in to continue. And then 
we can build upon the pilot approach and spread that throughout the organization, like, like our customer, Mary Greeley Medical Center did and talked about in a webinar a couple of years ago. They, they took that approach of building upon quick wins, uh, quick wins to then spread a culture of continuous improvement as a step towards sustaining it. It, it's, it boggles my mind that, that sometimes I, we see organizations and they're trying to do some of the most complicated things first when there's such an easy path to, to go down the baby steps route and to really build and build that momentum. So not only do you have to have a, you don't have to have a ton of expertise to do quick wins, number one, and then you don't have to do them everywhere, right? You can literally pick a, right. a small pocket where you have a local leader that is open-minded enough, and then you can just cycle through as many of those as you can. And, and you know, guess what? Even if you have no formal training on doing any improvement work, they're all low cost, low risk. So all you're doing is kind of creating a habit and then that will that kind of that wheelhouse will start turning. And then as an as an improvement expert, you can start injecting little bits of knowledge to make the kind of the problem solving uh, more sophisticated over time. And then they kind of build from there. Yeah. And then speaking over time, you know, there are two related questions here. Mech asked and, and, and said, you know, we, we used to have an engaged workforce where everybody was engaged in improvement. People, therefore, were excited about the positive impact. Now it's visible that some of the excitement has vanished. And I'm wondering what I can do to bring the engaged atmosphere back. And the last part of Colin's question, so what suggestions do you have for sustaining that culture change? So my, my first thought to Mech's question, it, well, two, two, two thoughts I'll share. First, one is I think a lot of it depends on ongoing leader behaviors. If employee, if leaders started and they showed a lot of enthusiasm at first about asking for ideas and helping people test them in the plan, do, study, adjust mode, and then leaders lose excitement, well, then I think it's natural the employees will lose excitement. And then, you know, I, I would encourage Mac, um, you know, since we're not, I don't even know what kind of workplace this is. If it seems like people are less excited, I, I would go talk to them and try to find ways to have conversations about why right. they're less excited, what's happening now or what's not happening and, and try to diagnose it that way. Yeah. When you, when you initially read, when, I mean, you see, you send these questions beforehand. When I initially read the question, I immediately thought of your first answer, which is I'm almost certain there's a leadership change that is behind that or a series of leadership changes. Or like you said, it might be just a difference in a leadership behavior. And I think the great analogy there is to say, okay, you made the decision, you're going to get in shape, right? You, you've gotten there. It took six months, took a huge amount of energy to change your habits. You, you now can run five miles. You're, you know, you, you dropped a little weight that you wanted to drop. You're feeling great. Your vital signs are all better. And then you stop doing all that because you say, oh, well, I'm, I'm in shape now. Right. And so there's, it, it's the same thing that applies to having a continuous improvement culture. The leaders are going to have to continue to beat the drum and constantly repoint and, and refocus because it is so easy for us to fall back into our into entropy. When we talk sometimes about kind of entropy, getting injected into any system. So it's the leader's responsibility to constantly refocus people. I also love the idea of just going and talk, go to go to the Gemba and say, hey, what? You guys were jazz six months ago. We're not jazz now. There might be something really simple, like 
I mean, it could be as something as basic as, oh, we used to do it on a board or if they're a Kinex customer, we, you know, y'all changed some feature or something, who knows? Um, and, uh, or it could be something more complicated um, and underlying about, oh, there's a new, new leader and they don't really understand what we're doing. And so they stopped, you know, allowing us to do this. So, yeah. So another question um, that comes in uh, from, from Mark, where does a culture change start for professional services organizations, such as laws, accounting, uh, keeping in mind real silos and predominant subcultures within the silos. So um, one, one thing, uh, yeah, in fact, I'll probably reach out. Uh, there's a couple who presented a webinar for Kinexus about law and lean and legal practices. They're both Great. lawyers, um, Karen and David Skinner. So maybe I'll ask them and post something as a, a bonus answer to this question. But, but Greg, you know, you're, when you're in the role of ER doc, you're working in healthcare, there are professional silos within the organization. I mean, are, are there thoughts that come to mind related to this question? I, I just don't know. I don't know if there's a area of any kind of organization that's not going to have standard work and that isn't going to either need need for it to be further defined or needs that standard work to be improved and or that standard work is going to relate to other departments and the other departments processes are changing. So therefore, it has kind of this other inflection point on your on your um, processes. So I can recall the the um, the Skinner's um, talk being I mean they they went from you know drawing up documents to even the financial um, side of things I mean it once they started talking about it it was like oh it's they're talking about just a widget right I mean just you you've got a a widget to do so mm -hmm. I could imagine um, and 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 I'm looking back at the question or I'm thinking back to the question, you mentioned a, a very distributed uh, team. I, I can imagine whenever the team does get together, whether it's a virtually or physically, um, you know, talking through, is there a standard way that they can communicate better? I, I hear yeah. just just last week, I was talking to a colleague of mine and and he's, just, he's pulling his hair out on a two hour meeting that he has to go to every week that he says, there's no value being created whatsoever. And um, I have nothing to contribute yet. I'm I'm forced to be here. So I think you could, right. you know, just start at some basic building blocks on just kind of questioning and thinking about value and thinking about removing waste. Yeah, and then and I think now that I'm I'm rereading the question, I paraphrased it in a way that missed the main question. Does the culture change start with one partner or all partners? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I imagine a lot of this change starts with one who discovers lean or continuous improvement or some aspect of culture change that they're looking to drive. I imagine there's an important role for that partner, hopefully, to not just be excited, but to also be influential to try to get other partners in other parts of a firm or organization on board. But maybe that one partner has enough span of control that they are the pilot area right. to try to prove this out. And I've heard lessons recently um, when it comes to implementing metrics and process behavior charts of someone I know at an organization who said, you know, she said we uh, that she stopped talking about it. She stopped trying to get buy-in through talking, and she went and just started 
creating process behavior charts. She started leading by doing and letting people see that there were alternatives and people started gravitating to it in a way that they wouldn't have done when it was just talk or it seemed like theory. Yeah, I'm, I've kind of, I've literally flip-flopped my head since you rephrased the question, flip-flopped my head about it because let's just create an artificial, an artificial constraint to kind of tease out the question. Let's say you had one unit of energy and would you spend that one unit of energy convincing the other two partners or would you spend that one unit of energy um, doing something with the people that directly report to you or that, that, that you work with in some way? And initially I was thinking, oh, well, definitely the other partners would have, that would, there would just be more scale to that, get, get them on board and then go from there. But I think leading by example is probably kind of where I'm at right now on the thought process, just go do it. And then, and then as long as you're doing it in a, in a, in a, in a way that is consistent and then, and then you share it and you, advertises is not the right maybe yeah you advertise promote it. You share let know. yeah share and um, then then that might be the, the best way to utilize your energy i guess it also probably depends on the partners because if you knew that the other partners if you spent some time with them would be totally on board with that then maybe that's where the best way to go is but if you thought that they would be really resistant and they would be data driven and want to see the model in practice and then that would convince them more than go that route so all right, um, there's another question, and gosh, we're down to about four minutes left. Um, so relative to when Kinexus first entered the market, and, and that, was, that was 2011 entering the market commercially, um, as Greg mentioned earlier, how has the market changed with respect to A, Greg, maybe you address this first, the willingness to adopt technology, B, the acceptance of lean or Kaizen by upper management in addition to staff, and C, the industries that are now embracing or exploring Kaizen. So what willingness to adopt technology? What what are your what what have you seen, Greg? So I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this, but I, I'm really interested to hear what you have to say, Mark, because I think you're more in touch with the broader market than, than I am. Um, there there's no question in my mind that the acceptance of uh, realizing that technology is going to be part of the solution and realizing that pen and paper is technology and, you know, physical bulletin boards are technology. Spreadsheets are technology. All, all these things are, you know, something that you've decided to utilize to communicate information that's not oral. And the, so, so I think the acceptance of that is, is significantly higher. Um, and, uh, when I, I'm going to speak to healthcare because I think from a healthcare standpoint, I have a lot of experience that's outside of Kinexus, and and so yeah. my my view of Kinexus I think is a is a, a skewed sample size because I'm mostly talking to people that have reached out to us for the most part. I mean, we're not talking to, you know, we're not pulling people off the street and forcing them down in a chair and like strapping them to it and talking to them. The <laughs> people that are talking to us by their nature have, you know, probably accepted that technology is going to have to be part of the solution. And right. a big driver of that. But in, in healthcare, I mean, I started um, in continuous improvement uh, almost seven years before Kinexus was founded. And so I can recall initial conversations that occurred back in, you know, 
05 when I was just starting to think about these principles and how they could apply. And people would be, it was like deer in headlights. I mean, they had no idea what I was talking about or how that could apply to healthcare. And then uh, I'll never forget uh, when I, and this was probably three or four years ago, was doing a new orientation at a, a new medical center because I was going to be an ER doctor there. And they literally spent an entire hour talking about Six Sigma and Lean projects and their program. If, that physicians out of a six hour orientation, they spent one hour on that. That was just, I mean, it was just unbelievable the kind of transformation. So I don't see a organization, a healthcare organization now that it doesn't have a quality improvement or process improvement or something in the the sphere of what we're talking about. Now, how well they're doing that and what they're specifically doing related to that is a completely different conversation. But I think that it's it's far more accepted um, yeah. in general. Um, Mark, I, I'd love to hear yeah. your thoughts. Well, I mean, I think you know people realize they need technology of some sort when they have a broader, larger organization. If they want sharing and spreading of ideas and inspiration to go from department to department or site to site, there's some sort of technology that's necessary for that. Um, as far as acceptance by upper management, um, unfortunately, I still see, I think, too many cases where executives think lean is for educating the staff and they're not embracing it and learning and leading by example. And, and that's a real failure mode and, and a pitfall. I think the best examples of, um, of this in other industries, like today I blogged about Dr. Gary Kaplan, who's the CEO at Virginia Mason Medical Center, and almost 20 years ago now, he embraced and led um, this 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 lean transformation, or they call it the, you know, they 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 would say they're adopting the Toyota production system, but you know, he's really very much led that. I've never worked there. I don't know how much he personally practices that day to day, but he has embraced it and accepted it and led it. And to the last question, and, and maybe get your thoughts on this too before we wrap up. Yeah, I, mean, I see lots of industries. You know, I get pulled in sometimes to do work outside of healthcare, and I enjoy that. I've done that, done work with, um, I've helped coach, educate and coach a couple of biotech companies, a water utility company, um, you know, continuous improvement. For the most part, it, you know, it's about people and create, cre uh, you know, creativity and, a scientific way of approaching problems and it's based on leadership. It's pretty, it, the formula is pretty universal, even though these environments are obviously different. And these and organizations are now in different industries. Um, Kinexus customers are um, in many, many different industries now. Maybe you can touch on that as we wrap up. That's how I was exactly what I was going to say, Mark, that I feel if you look at the industries that our customers are in, certainly healthcare, because we started really servicing that industry and manufacturing are kind of no brainers. But what we've seen recently and, and, and logistics, I feel like we've had that for a while, but um, we've seen recently um, um, oil and gas. We have had a number of oil and gas companies reach out to us in the last year where I don't think I saw that as much um, prior. And in government entities, we now have a couple of government entities that are customers that, um, that that's more, more of new, a new area. And then one area that we don't have yet that I think is uh, probably on the, the tail end of this would be education. Um, yeah. there, there is a continuous improvement conference we went to a couple years back. I think the uh, Carnegie Foundation, I'm probably 
butchering the name um, put on. And uh, so you could see that there were some some beginnings of that, but certainly not at the sophistication level of, of realizing they needed a management platform to, to do that on a, at scale. So I'm 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 looking forward to seeing education embrace these these philosophies at a deeper level. All right. Well, we are about out of time here. Episode 23 of Ask Us Anything. We still have some questions we didn't get to. Questions come in each time. So I'm sure there will be an episode 24. Right, Greg? Absolutely. I guess 23, this will be the Michael Jordan episode. That's right. Yep. Yep. Or is that, I guess people now would say the LeBron James episode? That, that would be true as well. Who is the famous number 24? Marshawn Lynch from the Seattle Seahawks, now the Raiders. I don't know who, who's another famous 24. I don't know. I just, I just, 23 is like the number. Didn't Kobe Bryant start his career wearing 24? Oh, I think you might be right. I think he did that before he switched to number eight. I assume he thought he was one better than Michael. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I don't know. But um, we'll come back and we'll, we'll do uh, 24. Uh, 24, great show. I, I missed that show, 24. Oh yeah, there you go. Well, maybe that's. Greg doesn't what watch TV though, do you? No, but that was a that's an old school show. I saw I saw a couple seasons of that. that yes, yeah. that's that's back when people binge watched a show on DVD instead of right. streaming. Right, exactly. I've done that. Exactly. Well, thank you everybody for spending another lunch hour or lunch half hour with us, and uh, hopefully you enjoyed it. Yeah, and um, thank you, Greg. Thank you everyone for coming out. I do want to mention on Thursday. We have a webinar that's in the, the more traditional presentation mode. Uh, Chad Westbrook from a company, Agco Corporation. He's going to be presenting a webinar titled A Structured Approach to Problem Solving. He's going to talk about a lot of great problem solving and continuous improvement methodologies and frameworks that I think are useful in uh, any industry, even if you don't make farm and agricultural equipment, which <laughs> is uh, their business. So we look forward to Chad uh, presenting that. And... With that, Greg, I'll give you the last word. Well, thank you very much. And uh, as I always like to say, there's no better day than today to start improving. So good luck. All right. Bye, everyone.